by showcasing their professions, passions, and perspectives. I'm your host, Manthir Singh, a.k.a. The Net Nehung. Three, two, one. Why Guruji ka Khalsa? Why Guruji ki Fateh? Why Guruji ka Khalsa? Why Guruji ki Fateh? Balpreet Kaur, welcome to the Net Nehang's Arena. Thank you. I'm excited to step into the arena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm excited that you're here too. Yeah. And I was actually thinking before we got on, I, I mentioned to you just before we started recording here that uh, I was going through your Twitter and your Instagram and all that kind of stuff. But I, I was wondering, I'm not even exactly sure when and where I met you. Was it Cincinnati Smoggle? Yeah. So I think I remember when I met you more than you remember meeting me um, because my entry into Sikhi actually came because I heard your wife doing Keithan. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And so during Since I Smogum, I think around like 2010 or 2009, um, like everyone from Detroit would come to Cincinnati and yeah. I had never really gone to Smogum before that. And so my first year, I heard Jasupenji doing Geetan. I was blown away. Um, I had never heard Geetan sung like that in in a Sangat or like with so much love before. And oh, so wow. I remember like being so awestruck that I kind of like went up to you and Benji, but I didn't really like you, I think Geser was um, small at that time. And so I, I was kind of like stalking you all. I was like, oh, I really wanted to. I was working up my courage to like talk to you. Really? I talked to Benji and then I like didn't. <laughs> oh my and God, then, I didn't know this. I, don't, I didn't know any of this. I mean, yeah, I was, I was a teenager. Um, I was like 16. But then we actually met officially, officially during uh, Sienna Retreat. Oh, okay. Uh, the yeah. next year. Uh, where we talked <clears throat> about, um, I think the theme that year was Rehat Mariada. And oh. um, I, I met a lot of people that year, actually, like Chicago Sangat, Michigan yeah. Sangat. Um, and so that was, that was my, that was when we first met, was oh. through uh, Siena Retreat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember that now. I know what you're talking about. The Rehat yeah. Mariada year. Yeah. That was, two, well, that was 2010? I think 2000, it was 2011. 11, 2011. Yeah, Mon Palviji uh, kind of got into, well, he made a point of like, like, should Kashere, can we wear basketball shorts, you know? <laughs> and I remember him saying like, no, the guru gave us white Kashere and I'm going to wear what the guru is telling me to wear. <laughs> so I remember that very vividly. For people that are listening, Bone Paul is my younger brother. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, he's not one. I don't think he's one to stir controversy. That's usually my job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's something I've definitely noticed. You and Monpal Riji have very different personalities, but oh, yeah. it's the core of who you are is very similar as it's well. It's funny you're saying that because <laughs> I think um we have a lot of we've we've had a lot of the similar interests, you know, like um, the kinds of movies we like, the kinds of stories we like, martial yeah. arts, um, all this kind of stuff. And even Siki, you know, 
um, Monpal, Bojinder, um, mm. and then Ravi and Bobby, Ravinder and Brinder. Um, we all got into Sikhi at the same time. And so yeah. we were kind of like this core group of like five young guys, you know, that we kind of supported each other, not even yeah. intentionally supporting each other. It just ended up being our yeah. support group. But yeah. We have a lot of interest and in stuff, but we have very opposite personalities. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. Yeah. That's awesome. That's how siblings <laughs> should be in a lot of ways. You compliment each other. You butt heads with each other. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know? No, no. That's what makes that's it fun. It that's what yeah. makes family fun. That's true. <laughs> right. That's true. Now, you, so you got into Sikhi, um 2009-ish then. Uh, maybe not uh, get into Sikhi. Maybe uh, you got... Yeah, I started exploring it um, yeah. 2009, 2010, um, 2011. I, I was in high school at this point. Okay. And so I always, <laughs> I always feel like the late bloomer in a lot of, a lot of ways. But um, yeah, just got involved with Cincinnati stuff and was really inspired. Um, the Bunt Sikhi in general was such a different path from anything I had seen. And so I really resonated um, with the potential of like being loving, courageous, being so inspired by something mm. um, that you you could live your life in the service of something other than yourself. Um, yeah. And I saw that in the way that like people were doing Kirtan. I saw that in the way that people were doing Seva at camps, the way that they conducted themselves in their personal lives. And I really saw an example of what my life could be if I walked this path. And yeah. And it really gave me hope. And I, uh, yeah, and then the rest is, <laughs> the rest is history. You know, they say history. history. <laughs> yeah, the rest is history. No, but um, the thing is like, it's interesting to me that um, those kinds of core values that stuck mm -hmm. out to you so much, it seems like you were able to attach yourself to them very quickly. Most of us go our whole lives in Sikhi and never really commit to them to that mm -hmm. level. So maybe, maybe I guess the reason I'm even saying that is because it was like 2012 when that whole Reddit thing happened, right? Yeah. And that's, you're probably sick of talking about that all the time, <laughs> but everybody knows about it by now. But yeah. that Reddit thing happened, your response to that person really embodied your, the sick attitude, mm -hmm. which 2012, you're saying 2010 is when you were really exploring. I mean, a year or two <laughs> into really getting into Sticky, you were able to so, you know, um, so strongly dedicate yourself to to those values, and that came out in your answer to that post. Yeah, that that post is definitely how the bunt got to know me for sure. Yeah, um, and it opened up a lot of doors for me. I was only. Four months old, Virgi. <laughs> I, had, I had received Amrit only in April of that year, um, uh, and I think, I think, um, I think the flow of hookum just happened 
uh, in that way. Um, yeah. I don't, you know, sometimes the call comes and you answer it without knowing what you're doing and it unfolds in the way that it needs to unfold. And I feel like that's what happened. Um, I do think that, you know, the post Amrit Sanjar high was definitely <laughs> a part of that. <laughs> but that's what um, it's supposed to be. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I mean, I, I look back to that uh, post now and I do resonate with what I said, but I don't think I could ever like replicate that because it was so organic. It was so just right. in the moment, but I think I was just inspired by like so many Gursikhs around me, so much mm. Barney that, I mean, I came to Sikhi out of desperation. <laughs> okay. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Desperation in the sense that um, I was longing for, for something. Okay. But uh, you're talking about, you're talking about in your teens and high school. Yeah. Um, like what, what, like what, is it the typical kind of teen angst, the typical kind of issues teens are dealing with and you weren't satisfied with what was around you or was it something deeper? It was both. Okay. Um, I think you can't avoid the typical teenage angst of trying to figure out who you are, why you are, what your place is in the world. Right. But I think I was, I was already such a, such a like deep thinker. I, I'm an, I'm an overthinker. Okay. And so I had been questioning my purpose in life since I was like 10. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> <That's> young. <laughs> and so, but I was always attracted to like inspiration and like this ideal, um, this idealism yeah. and, and Sikhi was this like source of beauty like beauty with the capital B, okay. um, like the the Sikhi that Professor Pudan Singh Ji talks about, right. the Sikhi that like is so inherent in Barney, right? That like just feeling like that was what I was looking for. Um, and I still am. And so very quickly in the desperation to like feel fulfilled to feel like I was meant to be somewhere or meant to be someone. I really found that in, in Barney. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the thing is, it wasn't like a, a particular event or a particular moment in your life that made you think, Hey, I need something more. Cause like for us, it was 84, 84 yeah. happened. We didn't, we had no clue about Saki before that actually 84 mm -hmm. happened and it got our attention. Now it took a couple yeah. of years, but then the, it it was definitely, I can pinpoint that 84 happened mm -hmm. and we're watching what's going on with very careful attention. We're watching the news. We're trying to figure it out and we're identifying ourselves with sick, even though we at that time cut hair, no, no mm -hmm. knowledge or anything about Sikhi or whatever. But mm -hmm. from that moment, I can say, okay, it planted a seed. And then due to the Sangat that we got and the people that we met, we were able to learn and yeah. grow. But for you, it was more of just you were already a deep thinker and you were already attracted to things that inspire. Yeah. Bonnie was one of those things. Yeah. And I mean, 
I had lived a very tumultuous like life, uh, being a child of immigrants, being in the typical Punjabi family. We saw ups and downs yeah. that, you know, are really stressful and really um, just shape you as a person. And so just from those experiences, I was always like, this can't be the entirety of life. This right. cannot be like who we're meant to be. Okay. Um, and, and, and that just built up like from my childhood onwards, as I was approaching college, I was like, I cannot be stuck in the same cycle of like, of trauma, of, sure. of generational like poverty. It cannot be stuck in these, this cannot be all that is to life. Right. And okay. And I guess like for me, um, I wasn't going to get the answers in my high school friends. I wasn't going to get the answers from any of the books I was reading or, you know, but I had found the answers in, in Barney and Sangat. And that, that level of fulfill, fulfillment really solidified my commitment to like, yeah, let's take Amrit. Let's. Yeah let's work towards and i didn't even realize what i was preparing myself for um like i still don't believe i'm walking this path i still don't believe i'm a six sometimes because it's so it truly changed the trajectory of of my life like you know how every family has has that one critical moment in their history that that changes them that you know, like if you had a time machine and you wanted to go back and reverse things, and that's the moment that will always happen in every right, timeline. Right. I feel like, I feel like me choosing to be a sick was was that. Yeah, and it's interesting too because uh, even when that Reddit thing happened, and you and you gave your response, and you said you were four months Amritari at the time, you're just taking yeah. Amrit four months previous, and your your response seems inspired but what was really amazing is the original poster he apologized and his his apology was quite moving too mm. you know like you could see that his life had also changed now because yeah. he had he had learned about six and he had learned about the um identity and now respected it and regretted that he had ever done mm. done that so like when you said that Sometimes Waiguru is doing things and we're all, and, and it, it's not even necessarily about you or about him, but like, it's about all these things coming together in this big play. Yeah. You know, pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, when I, cause I, I, like I said, this morning I was going through like Googling you and stuff <laughs> and I read his, that was the first time I had read his apology. I actually didn't even know that he had apologized. Mm. I, I, I just knew the story in general. Yeah. Have you ever, did you ever have any interaction with him after that? I, I messaged him. I emailed okay. him a couple of days later. Um, but I think uh, he was moving to like Florida or something. And so we never actually got to connect in person back when in person was still a thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, that moment happened. And I still don't know why or how it happened, um, such as such as Hukum, but it really helped me understand what the Panth is. Um, I mean, 
before that I was just I was just a girl in Cincinnati and half of the people I was talking to or building a sangat with like didn't know what Cincinnati was yeah. right um like you all came to Cincinnati for smogum but outside of that like nothing really happens here right well um, okay, hang on though <laughs> Because uh, I grew up in Dayton. In you Creek, did Ohio. grow up in Dayton, yeah. yeah. So, I, so we were That's in true. Cincinnati all the time. And That's actually, true. we used to come to Cincinnati in the early 80s, like before yeah. 84, up by Mendersing SDO and John mm -hmm. to come do Kirtan at yeah. the Cincinnati Gurdwara. And we used to come, we used to come down and listen to it. So I have a long history with Cincinnati. Yeah. It wasn't just random that I, sh that we showed up there. <laughs> I mean, I guess I should say like, by the time I had grown up, like Cincinnati <clears throat> didn't have that level of like Sangat anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, so I, I don't know that we were at any level either. Don't right, say it like that. Right. We were just, we, we used to be there and, <laughs> and, and it was good. Used to so be good. I should, I should clarify, <laughs> like the kind of Sangat that, I wanted in my life, like right. Cincinnati did not readily have. And so we had to build it. Um, but even then it was like just a couple of us and then little kids. And yeah. it, I was either hanging out with people that were older than me or younger than me. There was no one like my age who understood what I was going through. Right. Um, That's tough. And, yeah. And so and so even, even just Cincinnati in general, like my family is super Punjabi, right? right. Um, right. We're, from, we're from the village, we're from the Pind. And I've grown up in, in this environment. And so for me to then go and say, I'm part of the Panth, I didn't even know what the Panth was. Yeah. And so that, red, that Reddit incident actually helped me expand and feel like I belonged in the larger Sikh community. Well, that's really I, interesting. Yeah. And I got to like meet so many different Sikhs from so many different parts of the U S and Canada and India and the UK that it really helped me think about um, my Sikhi in terms of a global sense and helped me really think about, I have family all over the globe. <laughs> right, you know, right. I have a I have a community that is that knows me, that supports me, yeah. um, no matter where I go, and that I think was really crucial because that gave me the courage to then get through the next four years of undergrad. Yeah. Um, because again, I was I had just started wearing a dastar. My gaze on my face had just started coming in, mm. right? And and to then be honored in such a way by the Panth to say that, you know, we support this Amritari Kaur yeah, <laughs> was, yeah. was a lot. And, and it really gave me courage and it gave me a sense of support, but it also had its negative. Uh, no, I'm you sure know, you must've gotten, yeah, you must've, because <laughs> even, even in our community, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that are just going to react negatively. Right, yeah. because they're not going to understand. But beyond that, I think um, you can look at it as a, a character building exercise where mm. you already showed integrity in the way you responded. But I can I see what you're saying though. Now you're connected with this larger son, and now all of a sudden you realize you have this global family that you're yeah. a part of, and they're identifying with you. Yeah. So that's pretty neat yeah. too. 
But then, okay, so then you go on to college and you're at Ohio State. Yeah. Yep. I was at Ohio. Yeah, I was at Ohio (laughs) State from 94 (laughs) to 99. (laughs) And actually, I I knew that. Um, Someone had told me that you had gone to Ohio State. And then I had found out that you had started the six student associations or you had like continued it. Okay. So wait, hang on. This is actually a really interesting thing. I'm not trying, I don't want to take over the show here. No, it's okay. (laughs) We should all know the history of SSAs around the nation. (laughs) So I thought I started the first six student association at Ohio state. Okay. And I was into graphic design and doing all that stuff. And, um, um, I was building websites and Windows themes, SickKey-based stuff. So I made this great Ohio State Student Association, Six Student Association logo. Really? Oh, yeah. And I, I think I still have the shirt in my closet. I should have wore that today on the episode. Dang it. But uh, I was all proud of this. And we, and we were kind of doing stuff. And, and it was one of those things where, you know, we were, we were trying to keep it SickKey-focused. And there was a little bit of pressure that, well, we should do Pangara and we should do these kinds of things. And I was trying to say, no, let's not. <laughs> you know, whatever. And I was all proud of this. And then I found out that I wasn't the first. Yeah. Um, the first was, and it's amazing. Okay. This is an amazing story. Okay, you, uh, Do you know Dr. Rambir Singh Sandhu? Who was no. In, okay, no. He, he's the one that did the translations of Sanjana Singh Pinarawali's speeches into English. Oh, okay, no, He's the I one that did know. that book. And he's also the one that did like an updated English translation of the Sikharatnaradha. And it's a much, much better English translation than what's published by SGPC. Okay. He, he's a scholar. Okay. okay. He, I, this guy, he was in Columbus and he had a huge library. And I used to go over there and talk to him all the time. So in the 60s, him, Dr. Gurbuk Singh Gill, who used to okay. come to camps and teach, and he's written a lot of books. He's the famously that six don't lie, even if they have to die. <laughs> Um, yeah, he was the history be, teacher. Yes, don't be jealous. Jealousy is a journey to death, right? <laughs> so these were these little sayings that he gave us. So Gurbuk, Dr. Gurbuk Singh Gill, Dr. Rambir Singh Sandhu, and Dr. Darshan Singh of Toronto, Kankirthni Jatha, okay. were all oh, at wow. Ohio State in the 60s, and they had a six student association. Wow, because Ohio State had links with P, uh, PUA, no, P, PAU, right? Punjab yes. Agriculture University. And that's what they were doing. They were, yes. they, they were doing their studies. And I think Dr. Darshan Singh specifically and Gurbuk Singh Gill maybe were Whoa. agriculture. I, I did not I did not know the specific names. Yeah. But I um in talking to like our um six student association advisor and just people at the university, I had found out that Ohio State had links to Punjab Agriculture University. Yeah. And yeah, I mean when I got to Ohio State, like we, the SSA, I, I kind of feel like it has its ups and downs. Yeah, yeah, for super sure. Super active, and then it dies down. Yep. And every like five, ten years, it. Yeah, know, somebody re-emerges. somebody takes the reins, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I had I had tried to do that, and throughout my time at Ohio State, we had an SSA, and then we transitioned. We're the president of it. Uh, just for a little bit. And okay. then um, we had a group of like six or seven folks um, that like helped plan things, which is nice. Like we went to the Gurdwara once in a while and then that was about it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like 
coordinating with college students is always difficult, but it was definitely like, I, I don't know why. I always felt like, um, especially in college, it either makes or breaks your identity in a lot of ways. Sure. And, and so. Cause that's like, the time actually most of us are self-reflecting, yeah. right? Yeah. When you're, when you're at home with your parents and going through high school, whatever, <laughs> you're very coddled, you're very protected and you really don't yeah. know a lot about the world. You get to college and like, for me personally, like growing up, I always felt different. I felt mm. odd. I felt out of place. I felt like people didn't mm. like me. I mean, and I know it's a weird thing to say sticky wise, but at the time, middle school, high school, you're like, oh, you know, girls aren't going to like me. I have a turban and a beard, you know, yeah. and I don't want to keep it. And then, you know, then you get inspired, you know, whatever, but you get to college and all of a sudden you're interesting because everybody yeah. is different. And now nobody really cares that you have a turban or beard and you're making Mm -hmm. friends left and right. And you're talking to people, open-minded people, and you're getting other ideas. And that's the time most of us reflect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, from what I had seen just in general, like it was like the opposite effect of like, there were people who were like sick coming into college and then realized like they didn't identify as that anymore. And and then there were people on the opposite spectrum of like, you know, they wanted Sangat, they wanted to right. connect in a Sikh oriented way. And it was just a push and pull between those people all of the time. Yeah, no, um, we had that too. We had, the, you know, we had the guys that when they just wore their hair back, they're smoking <laughs> weed all the time. And I'm like, and then I'm having to explain to people, yeah, that's not what Sikhs are like. And then I was the exact opposite. I was so strict, you know, you yeah. I'm not, I never went to a single party. I never hung out with anybody that's yeah. smoking and drinking and all that kind of stuff. And actually yeah. I had it where my non-sick friends, sometimes they would call me. They're like, Hey, everybody's going, I don't want to, can I just come hang out at your place? Oh, that's so you good. Know, it, it kind of became a place that they could just chill too and not yeah. have to worry about that pressure. Yeah. So yeah, we had the same thing. I was probably one extreme <laughs> and then we had the other extreme where they were just part, the, the six were known as the party yeah. animals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially Ohio State. Yeah, my brother also went to Ohio State. My younger brother, yeah. um, he's three and a half years younger than I am. Okay. His his experience with like the Punjabi Sikh, like just South Asian population in general at yeah. Ohio State was so different than mine. Um, because like, it, it just hung out with like different people. And right. there were so many, there wasn't an SSA when he got there, oh. um, but there were other like institutions, um, which are definitely all about like partying and right, and- right. <laughs> okay, so in so, your sophomore year, uh-huh. you end up doing a TED talk the, at Ohio yeah. State. Yeah, and um, so, that was really interesting. So, why don't, you, why don't you explain a little bit about how 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 did how did you come about to do that? And then what was the message you were really trying to drive home there? Yeah. Um, I had just gotten an email saying like, hey, we saw you on Reddit. Um, we're coming up with this TED Talk uh, event at Ohio State. We'd love for you to to be a part of it. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> at that time, I had done symposium for like four years. And okay. so symposium taught me how to speak publicly and then gave me the courage to get over my stage fright. So 
from a logistical level, I was definitely prepared. Um, so the so the main point I wanted to convey was just introduce people to Sikhi and to contextualize like myself and who I am. Yeah. Within that framework, to seven hundred and fifty people who had never heard of me, seen me before, and had only have, known me through that Reddit incident. But you have 84,000 views on that video. Oh, That's do not I? Just, yeah, it's not just oh, 750 no. people anymore. <laughs> right. But in, in, that, in that moment, I just wanted to convey like where I saw my story fitting in with right. the story of the six, right? And so I brought up Guru Tegh Bahadur, yep. brought up Guru Nanak. I... No, the Guru Tegh Bahadurji lead-in that you did was awesome because yeah, actually, uh, um, that was exactly what I thought about when I first heard about the Reddit incident. Right, mm. that was the same thing I thought about that the Guru Sahib made us to stick out for a reason. And yeah. and this may seem a little controversial to say it this way, but like, if there's going to be a hate crime, it's supposed to be against us. Mm. You know, if someone's going to say something racist, we're designed to be the ones that take it first. Because we are made to stand out that way. And yeah. it should be it should be a warning to others that if it's happening to the six, mm. it can happen to anybody else down that line. So now that it happened to us, we should take action. And that I thought about it that way too. And so when you led in with that story of Guru Tegh Bahadurji and how nobody came forward to claim his head, and then Guru Gobind Singh's desire to make a six stand out, that you can't hide from your principles. Oh, you and yeah. who you are. Yeah. So I thought that was a really, really great way to do that. Um, and the other thing that I found um, really interesting about it was the way you connected it personally with everybody. Mm. But I got to ask you something. though. Is there, did they give you like a TED Talk training? Because every TED Talk, they use that same kind of speech pattern where you kind of start <laughs> off and then you kind of go higher and then you yeah. ask a question and then you come down <laughs> again. <laughs> um. No, I, okay. I'm a, I'm an avid procrastinator. Um, and that, and that point in my life, I had no idea of like time management. So <laughs> okay. I, they would send me emails like, Hey, we're meeting up to practice here. And I'd be like, Oh no, I have <laughs> an exam tomorrow that I didn't know. And I need to study for, um, but I actually, uh, finished my speech the night before. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, because <laughs> I didn't know for the longest time what I wanted to say, mm. what I wanted to say and what felt right, because there were so many narratives uh, that I had absorbed from other people who had seen the Reddit uh, post and they were telling me like, wow, Balpreet, you're awesome. Like, this is great. And I was like, I was like, yeah, that's what you're saying, but what do I feel about this? How does this, how is this relevant to my life? Like, how have I learned and grown from this? So it was a lot of picking apart, like what the world is saying and what I was feeling at that moment. So when the spotlight is on you, yeah, you know, you are introduced to other people's versions of your story. Um, and I constantly have to navigate those expectations now where it's like people see me and they see only the Reddit girl or they only mm. see 
a car who has gays on her face or they only see the Starwali Bibi, which is fine. I am all of those things. But I then have to think deeper and say, no, what is the guru telling me? What is the guru pointing out to me? And right. so it took a couple of months and it took a lot of self-reflection. And the story I had offered to the TEDx audience was was really an honest account of how I saw myself fitting in um, to this larger history, right? Yeah. Because all I I claim, and I, I think all six do this too, like everything I am is because of the guru. Everything I am is because of the panth. And so how do I explain that to an audience that has never heard this before? Right. Um, but looking back to the TED Talk now, there's so many, I wouldn't do that same TED talk. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I mean, um, you only have what, 10, 15 minutes anyway, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Within They're all supposed to be less than 15 minutes or something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. So it's not a whole lot of time to tell a big story. Yeah. But what would you, what would you do different? What would you say different? Or what would you want to say different? That's a good question. Um, what I'm here for. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I've thought about this a lot um, because my relationship to Sikhi has has changed and evolved and, and grown and um, lessened and like all of these all of these things over the past eight years. Um, I think if I had to redo my TED talk. I would not be so idealistic. Um, oh, interesting. <laughs> because I think the original message of my TED talk that was perceived was like kindness solves everything. Right. And and that the guru points us to be kind. Yes, the guru does point us to be kind, but guru also points us to be courageous. And Sometimes you have to do unkind things to be courageous. <laughs> yeah, you have to crack um, a few eggs to make yeah, an omelet. Right. Yeah, and and I think I I think um, the way that I had told the story, um, like what of Guru Tegh Bahadur and and Guru Nanak Jagjit, uh, what was it, Manjita Jagjit, Manjita. right? Like that. That was more like, this is how I'm applying it to my personal life. But if I had to redo that TED Talk, I would zoom out and focus on how Sikh history informs like actual problem solving for the, wor for the world's problems, right? Like how it actually gives us solutions right. to, to the world's problems from a systemic level um, rather than focus on like, how Sikh history inspires me personally, because right. I think the the Pantic and personal right part of Sikhi, those two sides of the same coin, we often conflate the personal with the Pantic, <laughs> the the individual with the systemic, and now I'm a big proponent of just keep your personal Sikhi to yourself. 
um, and and know that, you know, ono guptrako, but think about ways that you can really have a pantek life as well. Um, well, you kind of you kind of are doing yeah. that with your career now, right? I mean, yeah. essentially, you studied. Um, I know you had like neuroscience and, mm-hmm. and, and like, you know, it seemed like it, for a random person, like just looking at it, I would have thought, well, this is kind of all over the place. It but is. You had, you had, <laughs> but you had a certain trajectory and then you shifted yeah. it. And now you're putting those skills to work mm-hmm. in your current position. Now, are you, yeah. you're currently with that, is it Strive Together? What is it? Strive Together. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I studied neuroscience, international development, nonprofit work. basically everything and anything under the sun. I probably read a book on it, but um, now I have, I just got done with grad school. Um, I studied applied psychology with a specialization in org psych, organizational psychology. So I studied how organizations develop. Um, And so I use that um, right now at my role at Strive Together, where I am thinking about how to build a people first culture, how to build a culture of anti-racism, how to build a culture of intersectionality and care um, at the organization so that the organization can do better work with our 70 plus communities. So is most of that work here in the United States or is it global? It's it's in the US. So Strive Together is basically if I had to explain it, um, it's a network of 70 communities across the U.S. Okay. So those communities can be nonprofit organizations. They can be school districts. They can be a coalition of organizations within cities. Um, and we support them uh, holistically. So helping them think through their financial sustainability, helping them think through the programs that they offer to eliminate racial disparities in education, um, and really giving them access to resources that they might not have. Because When you say it's a network like that, though, it's basically already people that are kind of on board. Mm -hmm. So do you you get a lot of resistance for any of the things that you're proposing, or is it mostly positive reaction yeah so the thing with uh anti-racism work is everyone wants to do it until they actually <laughs> till they get, find out what it actually entails. find, it, find yeah. out what what it actually is right. um because it's the new it's the new like buzzword right anti-racism right. racial equity but to actually take action on these principles to actually make it a reality implies that you learn and unlearn everything you've been taught (laughs) Mm. and you know because we live in a in a nation in a world system that is based on white supremacy right one group um of people is the default and we've all learned those things um even if we're not white right and to then call yourself anti-racist and to then do the work within an institution so that the institution becomes anti-racist means to dismantle a lot of those policies, 
procedures, but then those mental models that exist, um, fundamentally changing how you think and feel and see the world, right? And that's difficult. That takes time. And that takes a lot of concentrated effort. And so there is, there is little resistance in people calling themselves anti-racist, right? Yeah. But yeah. when it actually, I think we all think of ourselves that way. But when you actually yeah. have to think about anti-racist means that you're taking actions and steps yeah. specifically towards or against racist infrastructure. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that's scary. And that is scary because mm. it's kind of like Guru Tegh Bahadur, right? Like you're the person, you're the person doing the thing. You're constantly sticking out as mm. the weird one, <laughs> yeah. right? You're the person who's leading these uncomfortable conversations. You're the person that's making people think twice about what they are, who they are, how they're acting. But then you also have the courage to and the humility to say, I am the person that I want to help too. So for me, like, there's so many lessons to be learned from Sikh history about how to, like, be anti-racist um, or anti, just anti-oppression in general, okay. right? And so applying that understanding to my role now is is the way that I feel like I'm doing my Kamai right now. Um, constantly thinking about like, what would Guru do <laughs> in this situation? Um, and it, it's been fruitful. It's been fruitful because um, even in the month, you see this like increased consciousness of the anti-blackness, the anti, um, or the pro-whiteness that we have within our own community. And, sure. and we're using the guru's history and the guru's precedents and the guru's institutions to like have these conversations. And I think that's awesome. Um, it just speaks to how relevant and how forever new the guru is, you know? Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Cause I can, yeah. I can imagine if you have to evaluate yourself and some of the own, your own racism, that mm -hmm. that's that it's not overt, right? It's subtle or it's pre-programmed or it's not even it's not a conscious racism, right? So I can imagine struggling with that because if you're telling me, hey, this thing that you're saying or doing is racist, and I'm think I'm not a racist at all. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, I'm I'm not saying you are a racist, but you have racism in you. It's kind of yeah. a sticky, yeah. you know, quite difficult. Like I I can yeah. imagine just being like, you know what, forget this is BS. I'm not going to listen to this and just get out of there because I'd be like, I know what I am. I don't yeah. need somebody else. To, I'm imagining that must be happening at some level, even yeah. though these are people in a network that are on board. Yeah. I think just from a, a body angle, and you can, you can tell me how you feel about this. Like, you know, Guru Sahib acknowledges that we have the potential to be Gurmukhs and we have the potential to be Manmukhs, right? Yep. In Barney. Yep. And there's no judgment behind that. There's there's no like, you know, uh, uh judgment. It depends judgment on in the sense that like Guru Sahib just stating a fact, right? Gurmukhlada Manmukhavaya. Yeah. Right? Yep. And those um, senses, yeah. It's just stating a fact, like 
there's a gurmukh part of you, there's a manmukh part of you. You have the capacity to be a gurmukh. You also have a capacity of to be a manmukh. And so you pick, right? right. You but, there, but there is a little bit of like the manmukh foolishly wastes his life. <laughs> yeah. And, right? and, and that, so there is and, a little bit of wisdom right. and foolishness. Right. And so for, for me, like those statements are, are not an, not an attack on like my mm. inherent worth as right. a human. Right. right. As a matter um, of fact, I would say that's the only two categories that the Guru divides human beings into. Yeah. Not race, not religion, nothing like yeah. that. But Guru Sahib says there's Manmuks and there's Gurmuks. And then that's it. It's kind of a, it has to do with your thinking and yeah. it has not to do with nothing else. And so I, I apply that same level of objectivity to words like racist and anti-racist. Okay. Right. We are such complex people. Uh, humans, just in general, there's different parts of us that are growing and learning at different times, right? You can be anti-racist in one moment and you can be racist in the next. Um, and I think taking away that value judgment that if you uh, find yourself perpetuating racist ideas, even unconsciously or consciously, that you somehow have lower worth um, than someone who isn't doing that, I think that is where we that is why, like, right now, the public discourse around racism is so tied up in these, like, individual identities, right. um, where we're afraid of the word racist. We're afraid of the word racism because saying that word somehow demeans someone else's identity or, or worth. Um, but I think that's, that's not what it is. It's like we've all been conditioned within this system that is racist, right? We are a product of a white supremacy system. And, and so learning and unlearning is just that, it's just a process. And so, I, I mean, just relying on like the way that Guru Sahib and Bani talks about our different identities, right? Like we all have ego, but we all have white Guru's light in us. We all are plagued by Kaam on God, but we all have the capacity of, of being um, able to embody Sat, Santok, Deya, Taram, and Himmat, right? Right. We, it's, it's that same continuum. It's that same level of um, reflection, but applied to the current moment of racist versus anti-racist. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the reason it can get a little sticky is just because I, I also recognize, okay, so this is how I try to explain it to some of my more conservative friends. Yeah. And you um, have many of them, which I'm always impressed by. Because... Uh, I'm surrounded by <laughs> <laughs> I am too, but I have not yet made no, because that many close friends. I, I could, because I think you got to, uh, I'm looking at it more like, there's extremes on both sides mm -hmm. and and what's happening is even like moderate conservatives they just don't they're just on a team that's anti-liberal even if the liberal is just a few feet across the other line from them right so sometimes it's just about being on the team then you just want to be like oh liberals are stupid or no conservatives are racist and that's not true but like when we when when we use terms like okay this is a racist country because i don't really believe that it's a racist country, but not like Nikki Haley. Okay. I'm not trying to, <laughs> not like Nikki Haley. I'm not trying to say it like she's saying it. I'm saying it in the sense that because I'm 
I feel like the country's willing to evolve, and it has. For example, and this is how I show the white supremacy. Barack Obama does not become president unless white people let him. Unless white people voted for him, he would have never become president. Mm. Okay. Um, and there's many things like that. The reason we had a civil rights movement is because white people decided to have a civil rights movement, not because black people decided. Black people would have wanted civil rights anytime it was offered to them. But it wasn't until they had white allies that could change the system they created. It wasn't going to happen. No matter how hard they tried, they would have had to burn it all down. But it did evolve, right? We would have had slavery still if white people didn't decide to not have slavery. So that, that's the evidence to me of the white supremacy. Because unless they give that power up, which means they have it, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And I, it may, it, we're, at the, we're at the infancy of accepting blacks into our society and minorities in general. So it might take some time still. And I know on the extreme liberal side, there is nope, no reform. Burn <laughs> it all down. Abolish it all. Let's start over with a better system. And, and I understand the thinking behind it. I understand. And I actually appreciate the passion behind that. But I don't think that's realistic. It's not going to move the other people. It's not going to move the people that are on the right. It's not going to move the people that are in the middle just slightly to the right. It's going to alienate them. It's going to make them feel like, well, you just think I'm a racist anyway. So, but th- I mean, again, I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. Okay. I, I didn't <laughs> study political science. I'm not a, yeah. I didn't study it like the way you're doing it. And you're actually dealing with these issues. So I would, I would, you know, look to you to advise that, oh yes, there's truth in that or no, there's not. And I know you and I have conversation. We've had a few conversations <laughs> offline that are probably a little too controversial for yeah. this podcast, but um, I, I, I think that's the inherent problem. We can't deny that there is white supremacy because racism is simply about power. It's, and you can be black and believe that whites are superior, and that's a racist thought. doesn't mean the black guy is racist against blacks. It's who has power. Who is one race superior to another? That's that's how I looked at it anyway. Yeah. So it's that power struggle. Yeah. And so you brought up a lot. <laughs> um, and I think it's it's important to acknowledge that yes, America is evolving and there's elements of it that are um actively trying to like dismantle the systems that oppress people. I mean, like I work at an organization that does that, right? Yeah. But I think if you look at America as a system, like when you look at the human body, right? There's so many different systems, the nervous system, digestive system, right? That work together in harmony to then move this body forward. I think if we look at America through that lens, our our birth as a nation was through the genocide of indigenous people um, and through the lens of like colonization. And so we built systems around that, right? We built systems housing, education, politics around that idea that we as white men 
who are wealthy um, and are Puritan, we own this land by no other virtue than the color of our skin. Um, and that has then rolled into like all other expressions of oppression that we have in, in America. And so if your digestive system is off, but your nervous system is okay, you can still have a functioning body, right? It just won't mean that you're well, totally. Right, right. And so I think, I think when we think about white supremacy and, and the journey that's, that America is on, I do think at one point we will have to abolish a lot of the systems that we have, right? We have to amputate <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, maybe. And that's maybe okay. That's true. Yeah, and maybe that's, yeah, you're right. If that's to the preserve, case, it's okay. Yeah, to preserve the body, sometimes you have to amputate and you have to get rid of the infected area. That's, that's completely valid. And right, I, but keep in mind too, with infected right. areas, you can also take antibiotics first, right? right? right. So, and, and that's what, that's what I was trying to say is like, uh, it depends on how you're defining abolishing. Cause sometimes things get abolished over time just because they're so different than where they, mm. where they started. And, and the gurus gave us examples of like systems that have been abolished, right? Like the Masan system was abolished um, later during guru, guru, the later guru period, right? Yeah. It was started and then it got corrupted and then it got abolished, right. right? So I think even from like a Sikh history angle, we have examples of systems that that started out with good intentions and needed to change um, given the circumstances. But I think like this level of what I find troubling is that unwillingness to let go. Right. Like you have white right. supremacists right. who are holding <laughs> on to the past as a weapon. Right. They're holding on to these systems that don't work for everyone. Yeah. Like the make America great again. Yeah. I mean, great for who? <laughs> right. Exactly. And so and so that's when you really have to question, like. What's the what's the benefit of holding on to these systems if we know they don't work for everyone, right? And then you get into conversations around who is actually benefiting from this system, right? Sure. It's white men. Yeah, um, and there, a lot of times it's fear though too. Like right. it's like the whole thing, you see people defending billionaires as if one day they're going to be a billionaire. Right. right? And, <laughs> and so when I talk about this, when I say the word system, it's not just it's not just like these institutions that you see it's not just these people that you see it's also these narratives that we've crafted right. to support support this dissonance that we feel because white supremacy harms all of us right, right? like yes um the black community has been has been harmed the most right they have been exploited from Day one, but white supremacy also has an emotional cost to white people because they have to live with it. They have to live with their actions of, of like forcibly sterilizing like 
black men, right? And but black most women. white people don't know about that. Right. They don't. Right. But like they don't the, even know about it. But the emotional cost of protecting yourself from the identity of a white supremacist yeah. is so big that you then have to craft these narratives. So it's I'm reading more into lately, I've been reading more about like trauma-informed care um, and looking at racism as a prevalent traumatic experience. So COVID-19 has been one of the most chronic traumatic events that we have experienced as a country, as a world, right? Because it's scary. Our livelihoods are being taken away. We're forced into situations of, of stress and de-stress and uh, insecurity um, and danger. And so that has a physical and emotional toll on us. So we, we find ways to cope. Right. White supremacy and the founding of this nation is founded inherently on violence, right? You had white men killing indigenous people, right? You had white men raping so many black women, right? You have to then build coping mechanisms to to deal with the the dissonance, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because it's hard to admit. Right. And so so those narratives of I I can be a billionaire even though I'm poor or I am not a racist, right? Because I've done everything right in my life, right? Or I have a black friend, I'm not racist. Those are all narratives that we use to protect ourselves from the hurt, the emotional impact of actually reckoning with ourselves. And, And like Barney acknowledges this too, reckoning with yourself at any level, right, is difficult, right? Um, in Asadivar, what was the party that says, um, Chad Dunya under Javana? Yeah. Right? Kapadrup Sahavana Chad Dunya under Javana. Yeah. Manda Changa Apana, Pehikita Pavana. Right? Like all of these Shabbats exist and they talk about a reckoning. They talk about you finally looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, Yeah, I was a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> right? But the way that Barney handles those those really tough emotions that come from that rigorous reflection is with, is with acceptance and grace. And well, there's, it, there's also something else there too. Yeah. Guru Sahib's usually, almost always actually, it's like a first person thing. Yeah. The Guru saying that about himself yeah. or the Guru themselves, they're saying it in that way. Mm-hmm. And when you read that, you, you internalize that and then look at yourself that way. It's not like the Guru is telling us hey you you need to change yeah. this way because you're a bigot you know yeah. like it's no but like it's it's a human it like barney is universal because yeah, it yeah. talks about the humanness of sure. of creation right and and sort of working within that framework to then like experience and reflect on the divine within yourself and around you yeah. so and so looking at guru's model of like inner reflection that is rigorous, that is honest, but also like Guru gives us the tools to deal with those tough emotions, right? It's not through further 
like bigoted behavior, <laughs> right, right. right? The outcome of that reflection is a change in behavior for the better, for Sarbatapala, towards like Nam. And so using right, that- Again, like when you go back to like, you're saying the their coping mechanisms, it made me think of two examples, but like the first one was several years ago, I heard on NPR story um, of a tour guide at a plantation that goes through and takes people through the slave quarters and stuff and shows them what it was mm-hmm. like. And they, she was talking about how um, she would tell the stories, you know, of the slaves and how they were kept and how they were treated mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And she said, increasingly over the years in, in like the last 10 to 12 years, more and more, she was seeing people kind of sighing or rolling their eyes. And then somebody would say something like, yeah, but didn't they have a place to stay? Didn't the master give them food? You know, is like they were they were challenging um, what's being told to them as a yeah. nightmare story. I mean, the yeah. treatment of slaves is unimaginable. Yeah. The kind of violence they experienced, but in, instead of recognizing that and digesting it, that this is what happened. This is the history of our country. They said. Yeah, but those guys had a roof over their head. They got food every day. They were they were taken care of to some degree. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's because like slavery, the institution of slavery is so crucial to the American identity that you have to justify it, right? And I think that's also why like you see statements like that because people don't know the history of Africa. They don't know like the history of the places where these slaves were, these like enslaved people I were think coming it's beyond from. That. I don't think they care. They just don't, they don't wanna, care either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't want to get, bl- <laughs> they're just saying, don't blame me. It's not my fault. Yeah. That's and essentially it, what they're saying. Right. Yeah. And, and this, I think as members of this nation, we, are part of it. We make up this, this nation. We also take responsibility for it. So for example, like in my, in my work um, at Strive Together, um, my team and I talk constantly about what, what is culture? What is um, our organizational culture? What makes it, what, what changes it? What uh, evolves it? And really at the core culture is a set of behaviors (laughs) that groups in an organization do, right? And because of those behaviors, you have these values and norms that exist, right? In a country, you multiply that by a thousand fold. And so in a culture that... There's also an institutional responsibility, but there's also an individual responsibility, right? And that's what the guru said too. Like, we have as Sikhs a responsibility to further the culture of Nam, the culture of Gursikhi in our personal lives, but also from up and and live that uh, Gursikhi culture as a panth, right? As members of this country, we have the responsibility to embody um, and to embody and take responsibility for our nation, both individually and, and institutionally, because 
while we may not have been slave owners, we are living on land. We are living on the society that well, has the economy. Been, yeah, our, the economy. Our, like, yeah, people don't. Tobacco companies are the some of the richest companies. Yeah. in the world, and their to, their product was cultivated by slaves. And so, how many sick? How many Punjabi families? How many sick families do you know that? have gas stations that sell it's tobacco, yep, sell right? Yep. So we are still benefiting from the system that has been run by. Yeah, there's the, no doubt. Uh, right? The United States of America has a responsibility to the citizens, even in the past. Right? But we uh, do too. So yeah, Well, that's what I'm saying. Like we as a country, the United yeah. States of America, because we, that is, it's us, we, the people, yeah. right? So we do have a responsibility. The, 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 and I, okay. Most of my conservative friends too, they're going to agree with that to some degree. Mm. They just don't agree how, what that's going to be, because then reparations comes up and they say, "Oh, we're going to give ten thousand dollars to every black person." It's like, wait, wait, what? You know? And, and then the other side is like, "No, we need to give the ownership of the tobacco companies to black families," or you know, and yeah. th- that's that's it's too much for people to swallow, and therefore yeah. it's just going to be dead on arrival. You know, and, and that, the other example I thought of um, when we were talking earlier was affirmative action. And affirmative action itself can be very controversial because even a lot of um, uh, minority organizations are against affirmative action because they, they say it perpetuates a lot of the racism. But um, it's so funny to hear people defend it. So mm. kid applying for uh, law school, okay, white kid. Due to affirmative action, he didn't get, even though his grades were there, everything, he didn't get the, um, the, the seat in the school and they went to you know, African-American or somebody. And the complaints started, well, isn't that racist? He was qualified. You know, now you're not giving it to white people, which is, which is a, I think, a legitimate argument against affirmative action because they've also changed it now to not include Indian. So, in, yeah. you know, right, because we're economically better or whatever. So now they're now like Harvard has a lawsuit or something there or Stanford or somebody, because they said we won't take Chinese people. <laughs> and it's like, now what's going on? But that aside. So then the only way I could get the point across to them about why that's not that bad as they're making it out to, because I mean, they're all like, God, it's BS. Man, this, I can't believe that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, his life is ruined. What's he going to do now? He didn't get into his life law school. What's he going to do? Oh, no, he got into Michigan State. Oh, wait. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> because do you understand that that's the problem? That other guy will not get in anywhere. And what's yeah. he going to do? Yeah. He had to be given a seat to get in. Otherwise, he's not going to law school. Yeah. Your kid still went to a great law school and it's still going to become a great attorney. And I'm pretty sure even if he didn't, you guys were all going to be good. He was going to, you were going to end up passing on your business to him or whatever it is. This has no impact on his life whatsoever, but it does over there. Yeah. I think that's like the differential impact Mm -hmm. that we, that we talk about, right. Mm. That the default in our country and, and the world is that white people are guaranteed success. Right. No matter no matter where they are in the 
the wealth stratification, right? They are guaranteed a certain level of right. an okay life. Which doesn't mean there <laughs> aren't poor white people because right. we're not talking about specifics. Yeah. We're talking about in general. Where we're just talking about the gone? aggregate, right? Yes, right. But within this world where white people have this standard of living um, that is assumed to be theirs, right? Everyone else has to fight for that. And, and, and that's problematic too, because, you know, you, you, we're talking about racism, but racism is also upheld by capitalism, where, where, it's, where it's basically whoever wins, wins, and whoever loses, loses, right? There's no one can, not everyone can win all of the time. Um, and so you have this, like, you have this racist system and then within a capitalist system, you have that sense of competition, um, and scarcity that then further perpetuates things like this, where Asians are against affirmative action because they think that they are now competing with the black people. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. and so this is like I've been thinking a lot about this just personally as well because Barney doesn't doesn't have an all or nothing framework right it can't because we believe in ikonkar if there's only one then there is something for everyone right and so when we talk about like sarbatapala it's inherently against this all or nothing idea that we live in as a society. Right. But even capitalism, you're talking about an economic structure, um, but like communists also are racist and that communist That's system true. also, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know if any of these so, systems are right. going to, they're, all these systems are going to reinforce whatever power yeah. structure is in place. Yeah. That's and how I they're all designed. Th- on, on a certain level. Yes, that is true. Um, power and power dynamics will always exist as long as there's two people on earth. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But I think like what I've been thinking about is this, the, like for me, the existence of power and power dynamics, um, the existence of like capitalism um, and racism it all stems from like kaam krodh lob mo ahankar right yeah maybe i mean first of all i don't know that there's anything wrong with power dynamics i know no that, there's not yeah there's right? not there, there's, because, because even the, in the guru and the sikh is a power dynamic yeah yeah and we've used power dynamics right within our sikh history yeah to to make alliances with people with communities um like that's what like the pre-independence era Sikh movement was all about. Like, do we yeah. go with Pakistan? Do we go with India? Do right, we go right. with like how do we navigate those power dynamics that that are there? Right. And and Guru talks about this too in in that Shabad like Harsyantarakiya, right? Um, like there's so many alliances that we can build on family, on community, right? Um, 
And those involve like the exchange of power, but how using power as a end all be all right is, is not like the sick framework. Power can be used as a tool, but the tool in order to realize a world that is founded on Sarbatapala, that is founded. Yeah. on I I I think that's the big thing because the gurus weren't against kings and kingdoms. Right. I mean, they didn't say, let's tear down this imperial structure. <laughs> we actually called the Guru Satchepatsha and Maharaja and, you know, Maharaj and, you know, these terms. And the Guru didn't fight against those structures. The Guru fought against the lying, you know, the dishonesty, the mistreatment of people, and said, if you're going to be a king, be a just king. Yeah. You know? And so it really, focuses the self the reflection on who does this system serve who does this system harm right and what is this system built to do right because if you're if you are a sovereign and you're using your power to rule justly and to get rid of oppression in your nation right. then then that's great but right. if you have that power and you're using it irresponsibly irresponsibly and people are dying like our president right now then like guru has guru has been very clear in what floats their boat and what doesn't right, right. what is where that stance is and i think i think like While Guru Sahib says that this world is is all Maya, right? Guru Sahib says that none of this is real, but Guru also then acknowledges that this is where the divine is, right? And so can we find ways to live out that divine in our daily lives using these human frameworks that we're surrounded by? Right, yeah. where we yeah. are not the ones chasing <clears throat> Maya, we're not the ones chasing um, this illusion, but we are making the illusion work for us so that Nam can be channeled. Yeah, and you know, I, 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 I'm not trying to get too philosophical here, but yeah. like you said, not <laughs> real, and you said illusion, and I, I definitely I, think uh, my personal belief is when Guru Sahib talks about Maya, Guru Sahib is talking about capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, we're going to disagree on that one. <laughs> because the Guru's also the Guru's also created cities and invited yeah. people to yeah. come do commerce. They yeah. said be merchants, trade here. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Yeah, that's that's capitalism. Come here, establish your business, <laughs> sell what you can, and then the whole society prospers. But I think I think capitalism in and of itself though, if you're just to say free market Free markets, yes. Yeah, things like that. I think that's scary because mm-hmm. now everything is about a bottom line. Yep. And most of what we practice here is all about bottom, bottom line. Exactly. So I agree with that. That's what I was saying. I don't want to get philosophical about But when you said <laughs> Maya and illusion, I think, are not real. You, you mentioned the word. Guru Sahib uses those terms to tell us because Ikkonkar Sat Nam. Sat is true. True means permanent, constant. Yeah. The unreal things, the false things, the illusion is that we think these temporary things are the real thing. Yeah. And they're just temporary. 
they come yeah. and they go. Waiguru does not. Waiguru yeah. is that constant. That's why yeah. Waiguru is the truth and the reality. Waiguru is the reality because it's yeah. it's the real thing. We get attached to temporary things. This entire yeah. planet and solar system and everything is going to come and go, right? But yeah. I, I I I get a little leery about using those terms to imply that illusion in the sense that oh it's just a dream and then your true spiritual awakening you'll come <laughs> up to reality like it's the matrix or something you know, those are those are fun analogies it's fun yeah. to think that way but i yeah. i don't know that that's what guru Sahib is talking about. Mm. but anyway yeah. um actually that was a lot of deep stuff we got into here <laughs> it was really great actually yeah. i feel like i, I feel was like not expecting giving, that yeah but it, you know you helped me get a little perspective on some of the things that i think and I'm hoping other people listening to might open up their minds and start thinking about things that they're not normally thinking of, mm. you know, yeah. and um, especially knowing that you're doing this work, that this is what you're engaged in, that you're kind of uh, on the front lines dealing with people and dealing with these issues as they come up mm. in these organizations. So you're, you're more likely to recognize it than most of us. So hearing you talk about it gives a totally different perspective than just mm those of us that sit on Facebook arguing with each other. <laughs> I have, I have stopped. Um, I think I like argued with people uh, when like I, COVID. I was one of them for a little yeah, while. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the sense that like I verbalized my opinions in written form on Facebook yeah. more uh, this past year than I have ever. Um, but COVID, we can't go anywhere. We can't do anything. We can, yeah. I mean, what else is there to do? Right. But I've actually in the last like two or three months have stopped. Yeah. Uh, doing that because I realized that one, it's an undue burden on on me as mm. like someone who does experience racism to then have to explain and justify right. that um, every day. <laughs> but then also because recognizing that individually, like even if everyone is anti-racist even if everyone is no longer perpetuating white supremacy the real work that we have to do is with changing and dismantling our systems mm. which is beyond people uh is beyond like individual like expressions of racist ideas and so i have stopped <laughs> engaging on an individual level um, when I see, like, especially on Facebook, um, people perpetuating racism, because right. uh, I'm like, you're gonna nothing I can say or can do will convince you to think otherwise. Um, that's a journey on their own, right? But what I can do is use my talents and strengths uh, to focus on the institutional level focus on the ways that the nonprofit um, industry perpetuates white supremacy, focus on the way that within an institution, um, you know, racist ideas are perpetuated. So that has helped. <laughs> um, I no longer like get anxious when I log into Facebook um, which has done wonders for my mental health lately. <laughs> I can but, imagine. <laughs> because it was stressful, Ryuji. It was really stressful. No, I know, like, I know. And then it's, it's like all you have to do <sighs> is put up a post, 
someone like me comments and then someone comments right back and then I got to comment back and then other people are chiming in and you're, and you're following this thread and it's evolved and you're like, oh my God, I was just, I was just challenging this one idea. I didn't, you know, now I'm being called names and now I'm calling them names and they're calling each other names. And it's just yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting. But I think, um, for me, it was mostly like, I didn't know that people around me could have such like thoughts about like doubting the fact that police brutality exists in, in America, doubting the fact that, you know, black men shouldn't be killed with, you know, impunity. That's (laughs) that's probably a lot to do with being in an echo chamber though. I have, I feel like we all do that. We start to think a certain way. Our friends are all that way. And, and all these algorithms feed the way we already think. And and it's happening on the left. It's happening on the right, you know, and Mm. everybody's being pulled apart and they're being reinforced with the things that they already have. Cause I, like, I can tell you right now, I know one of my conservative friends who's very anti black lives matters. And how, and I tried to talk to him a little bit about it. He was very anti-police and police brutality mm-hmm. because he'd experienced it. He always thought they were jerks, you know, because of his own experiences. But then when he was seeing the anti-police attacks coming from like Black Lives Matter supporters, it, it unhinged him. You know, like all of a sudden he was like, Pro police, and I'm like, yeah, because that's a dissonance. Yes, right? like what you were talking about earlier. It's a right. dissonance. Yeah. yeah. So those kinds of things, it's very challenging. But I feel like we're not approaching each other the right way. Yeah. I talk to all my conservatives. They're still my friends. I talk to them. I I can't stand some of the things they say, and they can't stand some of the things I say. They're like, oh my god, you're gonna turn you're you're gonna turn this country into 1920s Russia, you know? <laughs> and I'm just like. No, that's not true. Listen to listen to what I'm saying, you know. Yeah. But if we're not talking to each other, if we can't as bad as this sounds, we have to be able to understand where they're coming from even if they're racist. Yeah, for sure. Cuz like you said earlier, we've made racism and racist label so bad and so disgusting that if somebody's even got a hint of it, they're going to get defensive. Yeah. And I think um practicing how to have like sustained dialogue between like different viewpoints is, is healthy. Mm. It's, it's the, it's the potential to harm that actually stops me from like having these conversations because, you know, it's easy for me to to be in a conversation with someone who has uh, roots in white supremacy and understand where they're coming from, right? Right. I can be like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like your family, and I actually did that. I was actually part of NPR's, um, not NPR, sorry. Um, I totally forgot, but I did this conversation uh, event with one um, person from Kentucky who's an old white guy who had, um, whose family was in mining and 
that he was, he identified as politically conservative. And I, at that point, had identified myself as a progressive liberal. And so we had talked about um, our experiences like in America. And it was easy for me to be like, yeah, I understand your parents worked hard. They pushed you to go to college and like your, your family identity is really strong. I get that. But it's always the other side that has difficulty seeing my experiences. Right. Right. So within a white supremacy system, you see even that default of, you know, white people is carried forth in the conversations that we have with one another, where implicitly I have to practice more empathy and understanding to see the other side. Right. But that same empathy and then is not returned. And so you have this unhealthy dynamic emerging where both sides are at the table, but both sides don't have the equal level of belonging to speak their minds and to be understood at the table. Right. 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 No, I get what you're saying. That does make it difficult, but I think my personally, I just dismiss them. I'm like, they're never going to get it. Who cares? (laughs) But see like the fact that, but, but you began this whole conversation by saying we have to understand both sides, right? Yeah, yeah. And but the other side but doesn't the feel other obligated side to do it. Right. Doesn't feel obligated to right. extend that same uh courtesy. And yeah, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. And you have not acknowledged that as well, where you yeah. you're saying they're not gonna understand. Well, here you are like telling like you and I are saying like, yeah, we should understand the other side, but the other side doesn't you, want to. But no, others, uh, we know that in our bones, yeah. right? We know yeah. that in our bones that they don't understand. And I think this is the challenge of like any activist, person of color um, or white in their communities, right? Where the burden of explaining and empathy and discourse is placed on the people who are trying to change the system right. rather than the ones that are upholding it. No, that's true. But I think the thing is that also happens a lot because that th- that's the, the vocal, um, that's the, I don't know, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like those are the prominent people. Those are the people up front that you're, you're clashing with. There's yeah. probably a lot of people that would change if they just understood it better and they yeah. would be willing to, see our side we're just not experiencing them because they're not the ones that will put themselves forward that way either i mean yeah i would like to believe that too um and i i I say that because i've seen people change (laughs) a lot of my friends have changed you know like i'm not saying they went from republican to democrat but they (laughs) definitely went from like what the heck is this all about what's going on you know what's going on with the party that i knew or what's going on with the you know nobody no because even like we could criticize any politician going back, but like in the eighties, a lot of Democrats and Republicans used to go, you know, meet in Congress and then they would go have dinner. And if you talk to a lot of the old timers now, they're like that disappeared over the decades. Now everybody is actually polarized, even in the, like in their personal interactions. And, and you know, and that made me start thinking like, you know, when, uh, 
you know, when George Washington got elected, do you know how they did this? No. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because it shows you how far away we've gotten from everything. Hmm. Congress cast votes for who they wanted to be president. Number one got president. Number two got vice president. Mm-hmm. Just think about that. It yeah. wasn't two parties campaigning against each other. They were, they were voting for who they thought was most qualified. And then the person that everybody thought was the second most qualified became the vice president. Can you imagine today if you had elected like a Democrat for a Republican and or for the president and a Republican for the vice president, because those yeah. were the two most qualified people and you just didn't care about anything else. Yeah. How different things would be when you, yeah. how different would campaigning be when you know that I am going to be teamed up with that person afterwards and we got to work together. Yeah. No, I, I can't even imagine that. So when you said it, I had no reaction because I was like, that's absurd. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It seems absurd. It seems absurd. Right. And I, I think, I think like conversations like this, just in general, like expand the realm of possibility. Yeah. Right. Um, And I think that's what's most needed is we're so used to the way things are that we don't have an imagination of the ways things can be. True. Very true. Um, And, you know, for one, that requires us to move from just surviving to, to actually like living our lives. Right. We talk about Hazel's uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? There's so many people in America that are, Right. just focused on day-to-day survival that right. the mental capacity it takes to to organize and to have these conversations and to think about like the ways that life could be right. is so is so far beyond yeah most people are just like one medical issue away from being ruined or exactly. or, a car, or a car problem they get a car problem they can't they don't have money to fix it and they can't get to work now Exactly. So, and a lot of and a lot of times we just ignore that because we don't see it in our day to day. Yeah, and and that's the reality of America. We are not this like exalted nation that has limitless freedom. We are a nation that is struggling with poverty. We are a nation that is struggling with violence. We are a nation that is struggling with very deep 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 political failings. Right. Right. And but the narrative of America is is so different than the reality that people, in order to cope with their day to day demands, again, we talk about that dissonance and and trauma in order to cope with the traumas of living in America. People adopt these narratives, these these like hyper idealistic narratives that that are not rooted in reality and therefore limit their capacity to have real conversations. Yeah. And I'm thinking maybe it's not so much that they're not rooted in reality. I think they're exaggerated. I think that's the Mm. problem. Like America's number one, America's the greatest, you know, America still might be the best country on the planet to move to and try to make a living. You know, it might be. Um, But the way we talk about it as if, if everybody else is insignificant and they're not, there's, when you look at um, medical technology in Singapore, you know, and how they're advancing uh, Malaysia and Singapore and uh, South Korea, 
their technology advancement is all the kind of stuff that we used to do. We are falling behind, falling behind in education. You know, we fall behind in healthcare. And we still want to say, no, America's the greatest country in the world, the greatest country that's ever been. And that may be true in certain categories or in certain ways of looking at it, but it's not, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not the way we shouldn't be resting on our laurels. We shouldn't be saying, okay, because of that, we don't have to do anything. We got no work to do. No, we got a lot of work. That's that to me is the reason why I think America is great is because we can self-evaluate and work on ourselves, even though it might take some time and it might take some people raising a lot of noise right now and identifying things and talking about things that may start there. But I think America has that capacity. You know, I, have, I, I, I believe we, if we are a country that's evolved so much, it's just a lot to evolve in this last 100 years. Mm. You know, we're trying to keep up with technology. I mean, technology from 100 years ago to today is astounding. And society has to keep up with that too. And you have to keep up with the, what equality really means. Yeah. But, you know, that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, we've done quite a bit. of what It's been like almost an hour and a half or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can keep talking. <laughs> I could too. I mean, it, it's actually fascinating. What I'll, what I'll propose is let's do this again sometime. Okay. <laughs> come For back sure. and yeah, come back another time. And then we can kind of <laughs> even get into some of the other topics. Yeah. Really, really appreciate you coming on. I really enjoyed yeah. the conversation and I can't wait to talk more. Yeah, for sure. I, I enjoyed this. This has definitely been really enriching and I don't have the opportunity to like talk at this depth a lot. Um, so it was really, really enjoyable. No, I, I enjoyed it too. <laughs> All right, Bolt Breathe Gore. Do you have okay, any? Uh, do you have any uh, like social media things you need to plug, or how people can get a hold of you, uh, or anything like that? Um, I'm trying to use uh, less and less, less and less. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to trying to get to a point where I can delete Facebook. Um, that would be great. That would be. But awesome. um, I have a website where I share uh, Gurbani translations. So yeah, yeah, oh yeah. We didn't out, even talk about next time. We're going to talk about the Gurbani translations because I really like what you're yeah, doing yeah. with that too. Oh, thanks. So next thanks. time we'll talk about. So go ahead. What is the website so that people can kind of? It's www.balihadi.com. So b a l i h a a r e e dot com. All right. Very good. <laughs> Bob Breath Gore, thank you for stepping into the Net Nihangs Arena and we'll yeah. talk again. Okay, G. Okay, why did you got Why did you